happy belated 4th of July uh, weekend, um, or this is the weekend. But as all of you know, this past week, uh, some powerful earthquakes hit Southern California with magnitudes up to 7.1. And, and uh, for us, you know, we weren't near the epicenter. It was over closer to Bakersfield. But uh, that's actually more powerful than the Northridge earthquakes uh, that hit so many years ago. Uh, but we can thank God that there was no catastrophic damage or loss of life. Uh, but I want to encourage uh, just you all as a church or us as a church to continue to pray for those who did experience injury uh, or personal loss. Uh, my parents were visiting from Atlanta this weekend. They came to see, yeah, I know, not so much me. They came to see their new grandson. And um, they had never felt an earthquake before their entire lives. So they were shocked and terrified. Um, and if you've been following the news or even social media, ever since those earthquakes are reports of more possible earthquakes to come, and many are again kind of talking about earthquake preparedness and what to do uh, if and when uh, the big one comes. Uh, now for me, reflecting on this, I realized that there's something unique, uh, that there's something unique about the fear we experience from a natural disaster. Uh, there's a sense of utter powerlessness and dread, uh, whether it's a flood or a tornado, uh, a, a wildfire or an earthquake, there's almost nothing we can do. You can't call 911 to make an earthquake stop, right? You, you can't fight it off with weapons or technology. Uh, when the last earthquake struck, the, the 7.1, uh, it was in the middle of the night, and I was in bed with my family, and I just froze. My wife like woke me up, if there's an earthquake, and I was just like, Right? I, I didn't know what to do, and my only thought and prayer was, God, I hope it's not too bad. Right? Don't, don't let this building collapse on us. Uh, but I froze. I should have at least gotten my family underneath like the dining room table, um, but I guess I'm not going to win Father of the Year. Right? Um, but at least I didn't grab Seth and leave my wife in bed. That, that would have been really bad as well. But my point is this. When we experience natural disasters... Uh, we, we come face to face with a raw power that overwhelms us, and it exposes our weakness. It exposes our frailty. And yes, cars are powerful. Weapons are powerful. Technology is powerful. But that's a power we can wield to, to a power that we in some way can control. But when it comes to nature, it's a whole nother category of power that's beyond us. Whether you're a pharaoh, whether you're the president, a shepherd, or a slave, we are all at the mercy equally of natural disasters. And this is the power that God wields in the 10 plagues. Nature is God's weapon of choice because it leaves humanity. It leaves Pharaoh in Egypt. It leaves us with no doubt as to who has control, as to who is the one fighting and what kind of God he truly is. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn to our text for today, Exodus chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. We're continuing through our series in Exodus, and we're here at the plagues, and we're looking at the second of the ten plagues. It's the kind of weirdest of the plagues, the plague of the frogs, the plague of the frogs, Exodus chapter 8. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. 
The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Amen. The word of the Lord. As we work through our text today, I want to outline the message with two questions. Two questions. And the first question is, what do the plagues reveal about God? What do the plagues show us about God, who he is? his nature, his heart. Second, how do Pharaoh and Moses respond to God's revelation? So as God reveals himself through these plagues, how do the people respond? How does Pharaoh, how does Moses respond? And finally, we will close with some points of practical application uh, for us to consider. So what do the plagues reveal about God? In verse one, we see, again, God's driving motive for liberating Israel, driving motive for causing these plagues to fall over Egypt. God commands Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me, that they may serve me. And this word, this idea of service, it's a reference to worship. God wants to liberate. He wants to free Israel for more than just the sake of freedom. Not just so that they can own their own homes and and be out from under the yoke of slavery. He is freeing them so that they can worship. He is liberating them from a false king so that they can serve and worship the true king. But Pharaoh's heart, it's hardened. He doesn't know God. Earlier in our series, we went over Exodus chapter 5, and Pharaoh boldly told Moses, I do not know the Lord. I don't know Yahweh. I don't know your God, and I will not let Israel go. I don't know your God. I don't care about him. I will not comply. Pharaoh doesn't want Israel serving and worshiping Yahweh. He wants their allegiance for himself. And so this is why God afflicts Egypt with the 10 plagues, so that Pharaoh will know who he's dealing with, so that Pharaoh will know that Yahweh is the true and living God, that Pharaoh is not himself a god, that he would know that the gods of Egypt, they're just mere idols, they're fabrications. Moses says this in verse 10, so that you may know that there was no one like the Lord our God. I'm gonna 
comply with your request. We're going to get rid of these frogs so that you would know that the God of Israel is the true and living God. The only way God will break Pharaoh's stubborn, stubborn will and callous heart is by his mighty signs and acts and wonders. The second plague was the plague of the frogs. Like I said, it's weird, right? It's odd. Why would you use frogs, right, to kind of, you know, be an instrument for Israel's liberation? And as Aaron raised his staff over the Nile, the Nile swarmed with frogs. The ponds, all the pools of water swarmed with frogs which covered the land. Moses tells us they invaded everywhere, homes, bedrooms, kitchens, I mean ovens. You know, that's the last place a frog wants to be, right? This isn't a French kitchen, right? Um, they're there even in their own food bowl. All the foodies are like, yeah, frog legs. Um, it's almost comedic. But as we see in the text, it was effective. One of the chief gods of Egypt was a goddess named Heket. Heket. She was a goddess of fertility. And so I looked her up. I did some Google image searching. And uh, she had the head of a frog, right, and the body of a woman. The head of a frog and the body of a woman. And so you can look up Heket on the internet. And you can actually buy. So next to images, there's shopping, right? And so I just clicked on shopping. And you can buy stone and wooden trinkets, right? Pictures and carvings and statues of Heket, even today. And it's supposed to bring you fertility. It's supposed to help you bear children, right? It help with childbirth. Please don't do that, right? That's, that's, that's idolatry. And so if you're a family and you're trying to, you know, have a kid or another kid or whatever it might be, and you're like, oh, this is hard. I need to go and get, get some frog women in our house. Please don't do that. That's idolatry. Um, so why then? Why does God use frogs as a plague upon Egypt? One commentator writes, a plague of frogs can be understood as an attack on Heket, this Egyptian fertility goddess. And it was also an attack on Pharaoh himself. It's vindication, it's vengeance for Pharaoh's attempt to eradicate the Hebrew male infant population. You guys remember in the beginning of Exodus, right? We're told that the Israelites were becoming too numerous, right? Too great and strong, and they were afraid that they were going to rebel and revolt, right? And so in order to control their population, Pharaoh issued a decree that all the Hebrew baby boys would be thrown where? into the Nile, that they would be drowned into the Nile. Well, God saw that. He saw that act of violence and injustice upon his people. God, throughout the scriptures, declares, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And so as God saw Pharaoh drown a generation of Hebrew babies in the Nile, the second plague is a foreshadowing of God's response. God's ultimate plague of death that would fall upon the firstborn sons of the Egyptian households. The plague of the frogs, it's not just a silly nuisance against Egypt. It's highly symbolic of God's justice, highly symbolic of God's vengeance. Let me highlight a second important aspect about this plague, the plague of the frogs. Now, if you've ever been around a lake at night, you've probably heard the sound of frogs and crickets croaking and chirping. And you probably thought, isn't that nice? Isn't that charming, the sound of the great outdoors? But that's nature at bay. 
That's nature in order. But what if those frogs, those crickets, those crawlers and critters were loose in your home, not on the outside, but on the inside, in your bathroom, in your kitchen while you're preparing food, or in your bedroom when you woke up, and they're not just in the room, they're on you. The frogs were on all of the Egyptians and on all of, the, uh, all of their servants. That's not charming anymore. That's not warm and fuzzy anymore. That's disgusting. That's maddening. That's nature out of order. Okay, that's nature out of bounds. The frogs should be outside the homes, in the Nile, in the ponds, in the lake, not inside our homes, not inside our kitchens, not upon us. I once had a lizard in my bathroom, and I thought I was battling Satan himself, right? Like in the Garden of Eden, right? I was like, I was anxious. My wife was anxious. She cried. She's the first one who saw it. She cried out. I came, and I only saw the tail. I thought it was a snake, and I was like, oh, right? Right? Oh, here we go. Uh, but don't worry, I didn't kill it. Right? It was capture and release, capture and release, right? But the lizard was where it was not supposed to be. It was out of bounds. In this second plague, and all the plagues actually, God is revealing himself as the Lord of creation. And he actually exerts, he actually exerts his authority, his dominance, his power, by causing and ending chaos, okay? Uh, God gives and he takes away. In Genesis, God created the world out of nothing. And from the chaos, God brought order into the world, right? He separates the expanses. He separates the water from the dry land. He orders all of the animals. On the fifth day, God commanded for the waters to swarm with swarms of living creatures. That's in Genesis 1. He commanded, he decreed that the waters would swarm with living creatures. And it was good. But here in the Exodus... Moses uses the same language as in Genesis. And the Nile was swarming with frogs, but it was not good. It was a plague, right? It was a plague upon the Egyptians because this was creation out of bounds. This was creation acting out in chaos under the authority, under the lordship of God. Throughout the Bible, God shows that he's lord of creation, not just by creating and giving life, but he reverses creation back into chaos, he brings natural disasters into the lives of humanity so that we would experience and encounter a raw power that is greater than us, that is beyond us. He did this through the flood. He did this through the prophets, and now he's doing this through the plagues. He's reversing creation. He's bringing chaos to show Pharaoh that God has a power no one else can wield. Right? He has a power that no one else can wield. Peter Enns writes in his commentary on Exodus, creation is at, both, is at God's command both to deliver his people and to destroy his enemies. Each plague is a reminder of the supreme power of God who holds chaos at bay, but who, if he chooses, will step aside and allow the chaos to plague his enemies. Brothers and sisters, throughout our series in Exodus, we have an opportunity. We are called to remember and stand in awe of our almighty God. To remember that God is the maker of heaven and earth. To remember that he is not like us. No one is like him. He is greater and beyond our capacities, beyond our abilities, beyond our understanding. He is sovereign over all things. And I hope throughout the series, we would re-encounter this great God, this great God. God, as we study these creation reversals, right, 
um, and the great acts of God throughout the scriptures, we actually see God not just creating chaos, but he's doing this for a greater purpose, and it's to redeem his people. It's through the flood that God judged a sinful world, and he spared Noah. He had mercy upon a sinful humanity whose heart was continually set on evil, right? Uh, the Bible tells us that, that mankind was so evil, so perverse, that God actually regretted creating man. But he spared humanity through Noah and the flood. It's through the plagues that God delivered Israel from slavery. And it's actually through the ultimate creation reversal of the gospel that God redeems us that God redeems a sinful humanity. Like Moses, Jesus Christ had command over the elements. Jesus turned water into wine. Jesus walked on water. He made the fig tree wither. These signs and wonders, they authenticated the fact, the claim, the declaration that Jesus was the Messiah. And when Jesus died on the cross, there were more supernatural events. Darkness fell over the earth at noon. In the middle of the day, The skies became dark. The earth shook. There was an earthquake and rocks split. Graves were opened. All signs of the supernatural work of God. But for us, think about death. Ever since the fall, death has been the norm, right? Everyone that has ever lived, everyone that we know and will know, we will all face the same fate. We die and we don't come back. That is normal for us. That is now natural for us. But God reverses what's natural for us. It's through this mighty reversal of nature that God redeems each and every one of us from sin and death. But for us, resurrection, that's, that's unnatural. That's weird. That's odd. Okay? It's like a zombie movie or a science, science fiction story. But through the cross... Through the gospel and work of Jesus Christ, we see the ultimate creation reversal. Death would not have its final word over Christ. Death could not hold the Son of God. And because God raised Jesus on the third day from the dead, you and I can experience redemption. You and I have the hope of glory. By faith in the gospel, by faith in the Lord of creation and his power to reverse what we know and experience in nature, we are the redeemed. Brothers and sisters, just as this past uh, week's earthquake struck fear into all of our hearts, just as we were reminded of our powerlessness, the plagues were designed to show Pharaoh that he was indeed powerless before the Almighty God. In the second half of our passage, we see how Pharaoh responds. We see how Moses responds to God's revelation. In verse 7, We see the Pharaoh's magicians were able to make frogs come up from the Nile through their secret arts. They didn't use the power of God. They tapped into the occult. They tapped into the power of Satan. But once again, they're just adding to the problem. They weren't providing a real solution. Real power would have made the frogs go away. They just added to the problem. And uh, Pharaoh actually had enough of them. Right? Uh, this is actually the last time the magicians are able to reproduce uh, God's plagues. They only do it for the first, turning the Nile into blood, and they only do it for the second, to produce more frogs. Right? Uh, after this, they're out of the picture. But this actually shows that even the works of Satan right, are subject to the sovereign will of God. Okay? God said frogs, and all Satan and his magicians could do is create more frogs. 
They serve and they're under the sovereignty of God. But unlike the first plague, okay, Pharaoh finds no comfort in his magicians. The first time when his sorcerers made uh, the water turn into blood, he felt comforted. Okay, he was like, okay, I'm good. I don't care about the blood. I'm going to go back into my palace. Okay, his heart was hardened. But this time, there's no comfort for Pharaoh, probably because the frogs are on him in his bedroom, in his bathroom, right? He can't just go into his palace and hide. He doesn't want his magicians to produce more frogs. He wants to get rid of the frogs. And so he does a very interesting thing. He calls Moses to come to his aid. He asks Moses to plead with God to take away the frogs. And in turn, he will let the people go to worship God. He strikes a bargain. He's negotiating with Moses, okay? If you get your God to get rid of the frogs, Israel, the Hebrews, they can go into the wilderness and worship. But when Pharaoh saw that the plague had ended, what did he do? He hardened his heart and went back on his word. He didn't let Israel go to worship the Lord, just as God said Pharaoh would do. God knew that after the second plague, Pharaoh's heart wouldn't be fully turned, right? That that would all just be lip service. I want to make a couple of observations about Pharaoh and Moses here. You see, actually, uh, in a lot of ways, they share a lot of similarities. Both have witnessed the revelation of God. Both have heard God's word, and they were both called to obey. Both have witnessed God's power through signs and wonders. They're seeing the same thing. Both have tried to bargain and negotiate with God. When God met Moses at the burning bush, right? Moses five times tried to negotiate. He said, send someone else, please. Right? I'm not a good speaker. Send someone else. It shouldn't be me. And over and over again, he, he tried to get his way out of God's will. He didn't want to be used by God. But, though, but now, here in Exodus 8, their responses are completely opposite. Though Moses was reluctant at first, he's now surrendered over as God's servant. Pharaoh, on the other hand, isn't beginning to surrender more and more to God's sovereign will. He's becoming more and more hardened, more and more obstinate, more and more callous towards God, both by his own will and according to the sovereign will of God. Pharaoh proves in his response to the frogs that the old military adage is true. There are no atheists in foxholes. Have you guys heard that? Right? In a foxhole in the midst of war, everyone's praying to God. Right? Everyone's looking for help. When we are under duress, when we are in fear for our safety and well-being, we all look to a higher power for help. Pharaoh wanted Moses to intercede on his behalf. One pastor uh, commented on this. He said, many desperate people have called for a minister without ever really intending to call upon God. Just think about that, right? Have you ever gone to a prayer meeting looking for help and you're hoping that the pastor would pray for you, pray for your kid, pray for your parents, right? Have you ever come to church, given an offering, done anything, and, and, and you're just looking for a result, but you're not really looking for God. You're not really seeking him. This is what Pharaoh was doing. He only turned to God for his own benefit. And the moment he thought he secured it, the moment the frogs died and were being piled into humps, he went back into his word. He had no real devotion to the Lord. He had no true humility. He wanted God to take away the consequences of his pride and sin, right? 
He wanted God to take away the frogs when what he really needed to ask God was for God to take away his sin, right? You see that? He said, God, tell your God to take away the frogs. But if he was truly, if he truly knew who God was, if he truly knew what was at stake and what was going on, he would have asked for far much more than frogs. He would have said, Lord, have mercy on me. Pray that God would take away my sin. Pray that God would take away the sins of, of my family, the sins of my nation, that we would all repent before the true and living God. Brothers and sisters, do we do the same as Pharaoh? Think about your own prayer life. Why are you praying? What are you praying? Do majority of your prayers consist of a, of a, a, a request that God would change your circumstances? Is that what you pray for? God, change my circumstances. God, fix my problems. God, help me. Help my family. Without a sober consideration over our sins. Parents, when you pray for your children, what do you pray for? Their obedience to you, your spouse, their teachers? Do you pray for their health? Do you pray for their grades? Do you pray that whatever it might be, but... The question is this, do you pray for their sins? Do you pray over their sins? That God would have mercy upon them. That God, by his grace and spirit, would lead them to repentance. Which is a greater prayer? Which is a more important prayer? What do your kids need? What do our families need? What do our friends need? What do our neighbors need? Do they need jobs? Right? Do they need clothes? Do they need food? Or do they need forgiveness? They need Christ. You need, need their Savior, right? And I'm not saying one is not meaningful and one is all. It's greater. What is ultimate? And brothers and sisters, what Jesus Christ offers us is ultimate. It's the forgiveness of sins. When Jesus met that woman of the, at the well, right, in the Gospel of John, he starts talking, and they're, they're talking about water, right? And he talks about the living water. And if you drink of this water, you will never thirst again. And this woman doesn't know who she's talking to. She doesn't fully understand what Jesus is offering. And so she says, give me this water. Because coming out to the well in the middle of the day, it's tiring. I don't, I don't have a, a, a faucet. I don't have water access to my home. This is wearing me out. Give me this living water that if I drink it, I'll never thirst again. Right? And Jesus says, if you knew, if you knew who I was, if you knew what I would offer you, you would ask for more than just for me to quench your thirst. You'd ask for forgiveness. You'd ask for redemption. You'd ask for eternal life. Moses, on the other hand, he shows us the true posture of a servant. Not someone who, like Pharaoh, treats God as a mercenary does. I will do if you give. Okay, that's what a mercenary does. I will fight for you, but you better pay me. Okay? This is what too many people in the church do. I will serve you if you give me this. Right? Moses shows us the posture of a true servant. He shows us the posture of faith. His confidence doesn't come from the fact that he was raised as a prince of Egypt, nor did he let his failures or sins define or disqualify him from being used by God. You see, there's two types of people in our church. Some of us are proud of who we are who we've accomplished, what we've accomplished, our gifts and our abilities. And so we feel like, yes, of course I can serve. 
right? Of course I'm able. Of course the church needs me and wants me, right? The other hand, there's other of us who are so burdened. We're so haunted by our sins and our failure. We say, God could never use me. God could never use a person like me. I could never be a blessing. I could never be a gift. I could never be an instrument in God's hands. I'm too dirty. I'm too fallen. I'm too broken. Moses actually has both those stories. A prince who was a murderer who became an exile, right? And he's defined by neither of those things. He's defined by the revelation of God. He's defined by the grace and mercy of God as he encountered God at that burning bush and he was not destroyed. He was not condemned. He was accepted. He was loved. He was called. His confidence comes from the saving mercy of God alone. In verse 12, we're told that Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs on behalf of Pharaoh. Now, for Moses to cry out, it means that his prayer was fervent, that his prayer was almost desperate. The phrase cry out, it's the same word, the same phrase used that the, as the Hebrews did when they were crying out to God against their slave masters. It's the same phrase that is used to describe the Hebrews as when they are running away from the Egyptians and they get to the Red Sea and they're at an impasse. There's nowhere to go and the Egyptian army is coming after them. They cry out to God in desperation. This is the word. This is the expression. This is the heart and posture that Moses has as he's crying out to the Lord on behalf of Pharaoh, on behalf of Egypt. Why? Because he wants God to fulfill his promise to deliver his people. Okay? He believes in God's word and he's crying, God, let your will be done. Let your kingdom come. Save your people. Let your word be true. And he cries out. He doesn't just rest on that truth. He doesn't just take it for granted. That promise has led Moses to faith, prayer, and desperation. Church, do we cry out for God's will to be done in our lives? Do we cry out for his name to be known and glorified among the nations? Do we cry out with utter desperation, with all that we are, for God to save the lost and put a song of redemption on their lips? Or is our posture one of indifference? One of, one of passiveness? Do we fail to intercede on behalf of God's people? on behalf of a, a, a broken and a fallen world. Do you understand that intercession, that this, the, the, this type of prayer, it's such a privilege for the Christian where we have an opportunity not to only pray for ourselves, but to pray for others. But if I'm honest, for even for me as a pastor, right, um, we struggle with fervency in prayer, do we not? Do you struggle with fervency and desperation in prayer. And I think for me, it's because I believe that God is in control. I believe that God is sovereign. And so out of that faith in God's sovereignty or that mental assent to God's sovereignty, we think we don't have to do a thing. God's gonna do what he's gonna do, whether you do anything about it or not, okay? I think a lot of Christians take that posture, but I wanna tell you, God uses means. God uses people God uses prayer. God uses obedience. What does the scripture say? 
Moses cried out to the Lord on behalf right, of the frogs, on behalf of Pharaoh. And how did God respond? He did according to God's prayer. Right? He did according to God's prayer. God uses means. He uses prayers all accordance with his sovereign will. Friend, if you're here, and you might call yourself a Calvinist, and you have a high view of the sovereignty of God, if you claim to believe in God's sovereignty, but you don't pray, you're not a Calvinist. You're a fatalist. You're a fatalist. On the other hand, if you pray, and you pray fervently, you pray with enthusiasm, you cry out, but you don't believe that God is sovereign. You have a low view of God's sovereignty. You know what you are? You're an enthusiast. You're an enthusiast. The true Christian believes that God is sovereign and that our prayers are part of his sovereign will. That God uses prayers. That God uses means. That God uses his people as his instruments. What a great privilege that is. Here in the story of Exodus, God used frogs. God used frogs to afflict Pharaoh, to start to break his will. Here in the story of Exodus, God used Moses, a murderer, a, a man who had, he said he had no words. He's not a good speaker, but over and over again, he has the courage and gall to talk back to God, right? Think about that, right? You say you're not a good talker, but you're talking a lot back to God and giving him a bunch of reasons why God's chosen the wrong person. But God used Moses, this sinner, this broken man, this undeserving man, for his great purposes, to be a great deliverer for Israel. Brothers and sisters, God is still at work. The God of Exodus, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is our God. He's with us. He's working in our lives, in our world today. And the question for us is, do we believe not only that God is at work, but that God wants to use us, use your prayers for his kingdom purposes in this world. Friends, our prayers are too weak. And for too many of us, it's because our God is too small. Our God is too small. I want to encourage you with a final just application. A lot of times we, we, we see the plagues and we just see judgment. Judgment out of judgment. And it seems gory. It seems gruesome. It seems so wrathful. I mean, blood. And then frogs, now gnats, flies. There's going to be hail. There's going to be locusts. There's going to be death. And it seems like it's all judgment. But brothers and sisters, I want you to see mercy. That throughout the story of the plagues, there is the mercy of God that is abounding in this story. And it's not just mercy towards Israel. There's mercy towards Pharaoh. There's mercy towards Egypt. Last week I asked, why? Why the 10 plagues? It seems so inefficient, right? Why didn't he just cut to number 10? From the beginning, he would have broken Pharaoh's will and we would have saved a lot of reading. We would have cut the sermon series down by like six sermons, right? It would have been good, right? Why all of these plagues? But I want to tell you, it's out of God's patience, out of God's mercy towards people who are, whose hearts are hardened against him. God is giving Pharaoh, God is giving Egypt over and over again opportunity to repent, 
Opportunity to believe. Opportunity to confess their sins and bow before the one living and true God. This is what Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, he says this. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the Lord and the works that are done, or, and the earth and the works that are done on earth, it will be exposed. What a great passage. What a powerful word for us, both this promise of God's long suffering for us, his patience and his mercy towards you. His desire is that you would come to repentance, but there's also a warning. There's also a prophecy and a promise that if you will not repent, there will be judgment, that the Lord will come. He's not slow in coming. He's giving you, and he's giving this word an opportunity to repent. But on that final day, there will be fire. We will be judged and all of our works will be exposed. Brothers and sisters, do you see that? Do you believe that? God has allowed you to wander. He's allowed your, your loved ones, your friends to remain in their sins, to live chasing the idols of their own hearts, being gods and kings of their own lives. He's allowed all of this to happen, not because he's slow, not because he's distant, not because he doesn't care. He's allowing this to happen because he is patient, because he's merciful. He's not bringing judgment right now in this very moment. Why? Because he wants all to reach repentance. He wants all to see the saving work of Jesus Christ the free gift of grace that is offered to us through the cross. He wants all men and women to repent and experience eternal life. Where's God working in your life? How many more times do you need to hear the gospel before you finally repent and believe? He's allowed you to live your life up until now. All of that is kindness. All of that is patience, but you cannot live like that forever. One day we will stand before Jesus Christ and he will judge us. He will judge the living and the dead. God's heart is for you to repent. God's heart is for you to receive eternal life. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your heart as Pharaoh did. Would you soften it? Would you believe that God is mighty and merciful? that he is creator and savior. And he is all of that for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. We acknowledge you. And as a church and as your people, we wanna believe. We believe and we confess that you are Lord of heaven and on earth. God, you are beyond us. But Lord, we are amazed that through the person of Jesus Christ, you took on flesh and you dwelt among us. That through, per that through the person and work of Jesus Christ, 
He became our savior and our substitute through his death on the cross. Father, help us to not stay away from you and and hiding, not remain indifferent towards you in pride and stubbornness. Lord, right now, by your Holy Spirit, would you melt and soften our hearts. Help us to see, God, that you are merciful and that you have done so much to save us from our sins. Not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world, the sins of our families, our parents, our children, our friends, our neighbors. And Lord, as we consider Jesus Christ as the hope of the world, make us a people of prayer. Forgive us for being so passive, so indifferent towards your kingdom and towards others. May we, like Moses, cry out for your will to be done. Cry out for the redemption of your children. Cry out that sinners would meet their Savior. Lord, give us passion again, whether we are freshmen in college or empty nesters. Lord, I pray that you would make us all a passionate people of prayer for your glory and for the good of your people. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.